Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Between 2005 and 2009, the bodies of eight women are found in Jefferson Davis Parish, Louisiana, near the town of Jennings. Most all of the victims knew each other and traveled in the same circles. Tales of drugs, prostitution, police corruption, and the seedy underworld of Jennings plagued the investigation. These murders remain unsolved to this day. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast. And tonight we bring you part two of the Jennings Eight. You sleep with peace of mind, you don't hurry. I'm wide awake and know it's gonna hurt me. This you could do is show a little mercy now. So if you're gonna leave. Set the bed on fire Set the bed on fire If you're gonna leave, leave me Don't say goodbye Just set the bed on fire Baby, set the bed on fire Let it burn, let it burn Let it burn all the way to the ground Let it burn, let it burn Let it burn, let it burn on down Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. So we've got a new patron this week, and as you can tell, Coach is still enjoying the sun and the sand, so you still get the sultry sound of Arlo, but going to our new patron, we want to Welcome, Miss Kelly Story at the $3 tier. Thank you, Miss Story, for your support. We also have had some listener requests. We've had some great interaction about the Jennings 8 with one of our fans that grew up on the south side down there. So I'm still keeping her name under wraps until I get the go-ahead, but we're just Peeling off an onion we thought we had covered quite well. When we left off, we had said that the task force was commissioned after victim seven, which if you need a refresher, pause this and go back to episode one and you will find out exactly what we're talking about. Also, the thing that you need to understand is I made a mistake. I know that's hard to believe, but I misspoke about witness A. Witness A was not a female. It was a male, and I had misspoken, and witness A was actually a male that was in rehab with Mr. Rashad. So I do apologize for that blunder, but I called it too late after I'd already 
let the episode go to production. But anyway, so like I said, when we left off episode one, law enforcement and the task force had just been commissioned after victim seven, which was Nicole Guillory. And this was the second episode we ever did. And we kind of were feeling our way out. We are huge law enforcement supporters. But we call a spade a spade, and when corruption, incompetence, ignorance, arrogance, any of those other words that you can think of, plagues and investigation, we're going to call them out. And the Jeff Davis Parish Law Enforcement and Jennings, Louisiana scene is um, just about as corrupt as you can ever imagine. So we begin with one of the main figures, and that is Mr. Terry Guillory. Several task force witnesses made allegations that Terry ran the Jefferson Davis Parish Jail like a whorehouse behind bars. According to statements, Terry prostituted female inmates out to John's on the outside and released inmates, both male and female, from the jail in exchange for sexual favors. Yes, you heard me correctly. A separate task force witness allegedly observed Terry having sex with Loretta Chason, the first victim in the bunk beneath hers. Loretta had been released and was murdered shortly thereafter. Now, another witness told task force investigators that he saw, quote, Terry Guillory picking up girls on the south side of Jennings on several occasions, end quote. And a former law enforcement official stated that a female family member who was addicted to drugs, regularly had sex with Terry in exchange for narcotics. If the Jeff Davis 8 were killed because they knew too much about high-ranking members of law enforcement, then Terry would be a serious suspect. The women of the Jeff Davis 8 knew Terry and his ex-wife, Paula, as informants, as sexual partners, and as witnesses to misconduct. With all of that, it's hard to believe that members of law enforcement committed the murders with the glaring exception of Terry Guillory. However, Sergeant Jesse Ewing, a straight-laced police investigator, was told by two female inmates that they had information on the killings. At the time, the victim list was only four. These two inmates had their statements recorded. Now, Ewing feared that the tape statements would disappear like money and drugs had so often before, so he handed the tapes off to Kirk Menard, the private investigator, and Kirk took them to the Lake Charles FBI office. Now, this huge gamble backfired, and Ewing was charged with malfeasance in office and sexual misconduct. One of the female inmates claimed that Ewing touched her inappropriately during the interview. Ewing denies it, and that charge was later dismissed. The contents of Ewing's interview tapes have never been made public. They offer specific information about the murders of Whitney and Kristen, as well as law enforcement's efforts to cover up Frankie Richard's role in at least one of the killings. The first female inmate told Ewing that when she was in the camper that belonged to Frankie's brother Billy, Waiting to purchase drugs, she encountered Frankie's niece, Hannah Connor, who was smoking crack cocaine at the time. She asked Connor about the murders, 
and Hannah confessed that she was present when Kristen Gary Lopez was killed. Kristen, Hannah allegedly said, was killed in a, quote, designated area off Highway 26 and then put in a barrel, end quote. According to the first female inmate, Frankie transported the barrel containing Kristen's body in a truck and then sold the truck to a, quote, officer named Mr. Warren. Now, here is a transcript of the interview in which this supposedly, allegedly took place. So you are saying that this officer knew about the DNA evidence in the truck in which Kristen's corpse was allegedly transported. Yes, sir. Did Hannah say that? Yes, sir. Did he know about the killing? Yes, sir, because him and Frankie, Richard, they were good friends. What did Hannah tell you about the officer? That him and her uncle Frankie are good friends and that he bought the truck so that the evidence would come back to her Uncle Frankie. He discarded it. He cleaned the truck at the car wash. So she's saying that he would not come back to Uncle Frankie. Next question. Who cleaned it at the car wash? Officer Warren. What car wash did he clean it at? Ray's. Now the second female inmate spoke about the night that Whitney died. She claimed that Tracy's Chesson had told her about Whitney Dubois' murder. Tracy, Frankie, Hannah Connor, and Whitney had all been getting high in the camper when Frankie allegedly asked for sexual favors from Whitney. When she refused, Frankie, quote, got aggressive, he started fighting with her, and when she started fighting back, he got on top of her and started punching her, end quote. Now, that's according to the second inmate. She goes on to state, quote, Hannah held her head back and drowned her, end quote. Like the first female inmate, the second female inmate said that Kristen, too, was murdered by a similar group, that Frankie had placed her body in a barrel and transported the barrel in a truck that was sold to a cop named Warren, who, at Ray's, cleaned the vehicle of any physical evidence. Now, such secondhand accounts might inspire skepticism, but the first and the second female inmates claimed their information came directly from Hannah Connor and Tracy Chasson, who are describing their own involvement in the murders. Now, public records also corroborate both witnesses' accounts of a truck sale by the former chief criminal investigator, Warren Gary. On March 29, 2007, Gary purchased a 2006 Chevy Silverado truck for $8,748.90 from Connie Siler, the Jennings sex worker who was allegedly present when Kristen was murdered. Siler then uses the profit she made from selling the truck to pay fines and fees to the DA's office for bad checks she had written. Less than a month later, Warren Gary resold the same Silverado for $15,500. Gary's purchase of the truck was probably illegal and 100% unethical. He was later fined $10,000 by the Louisiana Board of Ethics for the incident. Now, Sheriff Ricky Edwards stated, quote, What Gary did with that was wrong. Buying from an inmate, that was, that was ethically wrong. Now, he goes on to state that his office, quote, had no clue that the truck was even part of an evidence in the Kristen Gary Lopez case. 
that didn't come out until way after the fact of him buying the truck, end quote. Now, according to sheriff office reports, investigators knew that Connie Siler was one of the last people to see Kristen Gary Lopez alive and that her truck was a crucial piece of the case. As Paula Guillory, a former sheriff's deputy and Terry Guillory's ex-wife, confirmed, quote, we knew that Connie Siler's vehicle was probably involved, end quote. According to the Ethics Board report, Terry Guillory assisted Warren Gary in making arrangements for Warren to acquire Connie Siler's truck. Because Connor refused to flip on her uncle Frankie and Tracy Sasson had changed her story repeatedly, the charges against all of them were eventually dropped. The statements from the two female inmates paint a picture that the sheriff's office willingly disposed of evidence against Frankie in a murder case. Yet, Sergeant Ewing, who took the statements, lost his job, and the allegations were never pursued. Warren Gary was soon promoted by Sheriff Ricky Edwards to run the evidence room. The hypothesis is that in early March 2007, Kristen Gary Lopez was partying with Frankie, Tracy, and Connie Siler at Frankie's room at the Budget Inn. Now, this is all allegedly. This is confirmed by hotel records that they were actually there. Frankie, in interviews, also confirms they were all there. And Tracy's statements to investigators confirm they were there. But the next part of this is allegedly. On the evening of March 5th and early on the morning of March 6th, Kristen stopped at the Richard family home on McKinley Street, where she begged to be allowed back into Frankie's hotel room. Kristen then continued to party with Frankie, Frankie's brother Billy Connor, and Tracy and Connor's camper. High on crack, Frankie angrily demanded that Kristen give him a blowjob. When Kristen refused, Frankie forced Tracy Chason to hold Kristen's head down in a bucket of water, where she suffocated by drowning. A witness stated, quote, They beat Kristen. Frankie beat her really bad. He told Tracy if she didn't finish the job, he was going to finish her. She claimed she had no choice. She says she drowned her held her underneath the water, end quote. This witness statement, in turn, is supported by the coroner's report, which states, death occurring from drug intoxication, asphyxia, and drowning. Now, Guillory was acquainted with Loretta long before her murder. Loretta's cellmate from the jail told investigators that one night someone entered their cell unannounced. A short time later, she heard the sound of, quote, heavy breathing coming from the bunk, which was directly beneath her. When she looked over the side, she saw Deputy Guillory with Loretta's legs spread in the air. He and Loretta were having sex. Terry's ex-wife had recruited all of the Jeff Davis eight to be snitches, and seven of the eight had told friends they were selling drugs for Terry Guillory. Now, fast forward to August of 2015. Guillory has somehow managed to become the assistant chief of the Lake Arthur Police Department. 
A new detective, Ray Mott, is called into a meeting with the chief and the district attorney of Jeff Davis Parish. They confront him with a picture of him in a black KKK uniform at a KKK rally in North Carolina. The trio tells Mott, you're fired. News of the photo reaches the New York Daily News and the Huffington Post, and it appears they have a bad cop off the streets. But, hold on, Raggy, because unbeknownst to the three stooges or the off triplets, jerk, jack, and fuck, Mott was actually an informant with the FBI who helped stamp out the KKK in Louisiana. So you may be asking yourself, self, why is Arlo talking about this Mott feller? Well, boys and girls, grab you some popcorn, open up another drink, and get a gander at this. So Mott says that a couple weeks before he is fired, he is on call with the chief, and they wind up at Crystal Benoisino's sister's house. Her and her neighbor were pissed at each other over $5. As soon as they get out of the car, the sister is panicking and screams, quote, Terry Guillory killed my sister. I don't want any part of this. What? What? Mott writes up the incidents, and one of Crystal's family members shows up and shows him a video trying to explain why the sister is freaked out. In the video, according to Mott, a confidential informant is seen telling an investigator that seven of the eight Jennings eight were selling drugs for Terry Guillory. Mott states that at the time, he just blew it off, and being new to the area, he didn't really understand the implications. A couple of days passed, and he is called into a meeting with the chief and Guillory, and Guillory tells him, stop doing drug busts, end quote. He then proceeds to tell him, quote, people are tired of reading about all these drug busts in the newspaper. I didn't make any of this shit up. This is actually the assistant chief and the chief. A couple of weeks later, Mott is still doing his job, making drug busts, and is called in. And that's when they present him with the picture of him in a black KKK outfit. Do you think this is a coincidence? Because if you do... I would love to sell you some oceanfront property in Arizona. I got some oceanfront property in Arizona. From my front porch you can see the sea. I got some oceanfront property in Arizona. So now we get to another player in the... Jennings 8, and that is Paula Guillory. Now, task force member and head of the evidence room at the sheriff's office is what she was in charge of when all this shit is going down. After a huge burglary ring is busted during the investigation into the murders, then they raid Frankie Richard's mother's house and seize an old coin collection and jewelry, as well as drugs and approximately $3,500 in cash. An investigator goes to review the evidence in the case and finds that the $3,500 is gone, like a fart in a dust storm. 
an internal investigation is conducted, and now Paula is left holding the bag because she has divorced Terry. Again, if you think this is all coincidences, this may not be the podcast for you. So, as you guess, she's ultimately fired. What comes out is that before she was put in charge of the evidence room, the sheriff's office never had any evidence go missing once it was logged into evidence. But when Paula gets promoted to being over the evidence room, shit starts disappearing. Other deputies would come forward and accuse Paula of leaking information about numerous cases, her poor work habits, leaving evidence out in the open, and they also claimed her children were key players in the Jennings drug scene. As a member of the task force, this is another hole in the titanic shit show that this task force is supposedly doing. With the cash now gone, the case against Frankie falls apart, or not the first time but the third time. And Frankie, being cocky at the time, even goes on record stating that he sure is glad Paula lost that cash or he'd be doing some serious time. Well, no shit, Frankie. You're killing me, Smalls. Now we get to Mr. Frankie Richard himself, also known as the Teflon Don of Jennings. Surprise, motherfucker. Frankie had been a strip club owner, a pimp, a drug dealer, a meth addict, crack addict, and pretty much muscle for hire. He had suffered a broken back working the oil fields of Louisiana and used his settlement to start a dump truck business. He sells the dump trucks for the strip club, but this quote from Frankie will tell you all you need to know about how Frankie sees Jennings. Quote, I sold my trucks and opened up a whorehouse, end quote. In the 90s, he had owned four strip clubs in Lafayette. His drinking and taste for violence when he drank is the main reason he lost it all. Broke, he moves back in with his mother in South Jennings. It is at this time he gets into the prescription pill scene. And he would run the pills out of the Boudreaux Inn, which sat off I-10, He would also pimp at least three of the eight victims that we're discussing during the time, which were Loretta Chason, Kristen Gary Lopez, and Whitney Dubois. In the spring of 2007, Frankie finds himself in jail facing rape charges. And to that, he is being looked at as a prime suspect in Whitney and Kristen's death. Frankie is staring down a, quote, natural life sentence without parole due to being a habitual offender. On May 16th of 2007, he is arrested for second-degree murder in the killing of Kristen Gary Lopez. But in true Teflon Don fashion, all charges are dropped when the accusers or witnesses stop cooperating with the police. That's terrible. There obviously was enough evidence to issue a warrant in those cases, but like all things in Jennings, the DA decides whether to pursue or not to pursue charges. And he is on record of saying the reason he did not pursue charges against Frankie was due to evidence being, quote, shaky. 
From the outside, it appears as someone is protecting Frankie and his criminal empire of drugs and sex. Now, around the middle of December 2008, Frankie calls one of the investigators with the task force while he is at an inpatient drug rehab facility and asks him to come see him. Officer Jarrett Dobson obliges and visits Frankie. Frankie tells Dobson that Michael Prudhomme, boyfriend of Nicole Guillory, had cleaned the Chevy Silverado that investigators believed was used to dispose of Kristen's body. Frankie goes on to say that his sister Tabitha was with Loretta Chason just before she died, though he insisted that Loretta had suffered a seizure and the people she was partying with panicked and dumped her in the canal. Then Frankie starts naming names of crooked cops, including Deputy Danny Barry, who he claimed paid for sex with the murdered women and were also involved in their violent demises. Frankie was, and still is, a suspect in at least two of the murders, Whitney's and Kristen's. With that being said, he has cooperated with law enforcement. Frankie was debriefed by task force investigators on at least four separate occasions in 2008 and 2009. During these debriefings, Frankie would often make incriminating statements, but as noted earlier, he's the Teflon Don, and he has the backing of someone high in power. His criminal history is a plethora of drop charges in cases of theft, rape, and murder. Frankie has Polaroids of key people in compromising positions, is what I'm thinking. It is rumored that he was issued a key to the task force office. Multiple witnesses watched him let himself in at all hours of the day. Y'all, you can't make this shit up. I don't care if you were a meth head and you were writing a play. You, There's no way you come up with this. It's... It's crazy. So his relationship with law enforcement goes back beyond the Jeff Davis 8 murders. Remember, he was rumored to be in with a deputy when they stole 300 pounds of marijuana from the sheriff's office. NBC affiliate KPLC aired a seven-part series on the Jeff Davis 8 called, quote, Unsolved Mystery in the Jeff Davis Parish. Most of these interviews are still available on YouTube. And Frankie Richard, Tracy Chasson, Whitney Dubois' brother Mike Dubois, Sheriff Ricky Edwards, and family members of the other victims were all interviewed. After the series aired, Jennings would see more murders during the early months of 2010. Instead of sex workers, it was the street-level players that wound up being dead. Four in total. Now, that is part two of The Jennings Eight. We are going to do a part three, and the reason that we are going to do a part three is there is a huge conspiracy that when we originally did the episode, we cut out just based on the time frame of the episode, because I think the episode ran for like almost two hours and 10 minutes. That's back when we, you know, said we wouldn't do two-parters and things like that. But this one, this conspiracy theory, is one of the bigger tinfoil hat things going on with the Jennings 8. 
like I said last week, there are several avenues that you can dive into to research this case on your own. There is the book that I referenced last week. There is also, I think it's ID did a four or six part original miniseries on it. And then Showtime picked up, I think it's six episodes. So there's two documentaries out there about the Jennings Eight. And one of them, they used the author of the book, Murder in the Bayou by Ethan Brown. If you have not checked it out, you can, with a free Audible subscription, download that book for free. Uh, A lot of people bitch about the narrator. It's an Audible book. You're not getting a Pulitzer Prize acting nomination for an Audible book. So I don't know why people get so pissy. But... With that said, it is a very good read. It goes over a lot of what we've been talking about. Those videos that I talked about are still on YouTube. Most of them look like they were filmed in the 90s, and it's a clapboard house, front porch, probably no bigger than your dining room table, but they're still all out there. So next week, we wrap this thing up with part three. Like I said, it's one of the bigger tinfoil hat conspiracy theories out there. A lot of it is based off hearsay and circumstantial evidence, but I think it plays a huge part in this, and it does the story justice. So, again, thank you so much for our patrons. Thank you so much for our listeners and our fans. If you're not a member of our private Facebook page, please go out there and look for Mysterious Brews pages. And it is a private group, but we we let everyone in, so... No recommendations this week other than find that Facebook page and deuces.